hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is my friend Josh Peck. He's been famous for a really long time. Uh, You know who he is. He has written a terrific new book about, well, on the one hand, it's about his life in Hollywood, but that's just selling it so short. I mean, it is a book ultimately about secrets and about how to overcome the secrets that we think are uh, telling us that we're not worthy, essentially. And um, it is a book that I think all of us can get something out of. It's hilarious, totally entertaining. Josh, what's the title of the book? It's a little title, a little sassy title called Happy People Are Annoying. Yes, and it's perfect because it plays off of your uh, public persona. And, you know, I've known you for a pretty long time, and it's funny, I, I met you right in the shadow of, of, in a way, what you describe as your professional bottom, not really the bottom related to substances, but you do describe like your professional bottom, which is I really met you right after you'd filmed Red Dawn and in that period of time when it was uh, supposed to come out. And uh, I, I will say that, that, that this book tracks Josh's story as a kid actor or a kid wanting to be an actor, living with his mom in New York, uh, all the way uh, through his you know, massive social um, media business and his comeback to the worlds of television and, and, and film in a triumphant way. And I guess, Josh, I want to start with you talk about craft and how you felt at a certain point in your career, you realized a long way into it that you didn't really have craft. And the way you describe it in the book is it's this almost sudden realization. But what I wonder is, was there a voice that was nagging at you where you would feel like you'd be standing on a set in a scene with someone who clearly did, and it's the third take, and, and you're kind of without a rudder? And how fucking scary did that feel? It's such a great, it's, it's a little inside baseball, but that's such a great example of like the third take overwhelming fear of like, because the first one was the way you practiced it in the shower. Right. And then the second one is the people pleasing version where you just try to appease every note that you've just gotten <laughs> to the nth degree that you literally get handed a trophy after and, and people start clapping and, and you walk away and, and drop the mic. But the third chapter or the third take is like, well, what now? And I, I, I think I describe it best in the book. I was constantly vacillating. I was like a fighter with a 2020 record, right? Cause I, I could be good. In, in, you know, with the right sort of melding of where I had enough of a personalization to really be able to identify with that character, like the one I played in The Wackness, where it was a, a young, drug-addicted, hip-hop head kid. Who I was- mean, The Wackness is what made me want to work with you. That's what David and I saw, and we were like, we got to work with this kid, and that, that's, that's exactly, exactly right. But I, I know from, from reading the book where you're going, but it also felt more to me like a streak shooter than a 2020, where it's just like... You almost didn't have any idea why it worked, but suddenly you were able to hit 25 shots. But then the next game, you're clanking them all off the rim. That's exactly right. Yeah, I just couldn't. And also, but there was that ego part of it, which was like, 
I, I was good once. I fought at Madison Square Garden once and they were like, yeah, but now you're taking a dive at some like crappy fight in, in, a, in a small city in Mexico. Like, so it's it. What does it matter? And, and that, that was the great lie that I told myself for many years, which was, but you were good once. Wasn't I good once? Like I would tell myself that even in the depths of being utterly lost as an actor. And was it a lot of the book is about wrestling with feeling like an outsider or feeling like you didn't quite belong. But then the place you were happy and did belong was on set. But when you started, as you grew up into like a real, as you grew up and started getting these different parts, and then the set itself must have started to feel like a scary place instead of a safe home, right? Because you were asked to do a thing and, and it was no longer like natural or comfortable for you it's a great no it's a great point i you're right i mean my mind can make anywhere unsafe even huh. it can it can it can radiate my mother's love it can you know make me resentful at my kid like these pure beacons of goodness it can ruin it because my mind is just at its default settings is sort of at conflict with the world around me and you're right i you know, I know we both love Robert Greene and he talks in his book, The Daily Laws, about how like we have to get back to that thing that we loved when we were kids before money and prestige was a thought. And acting has always been that for me. But I was at this crossroads, this place where I was like, I just didn't, I was so angry at it. And I, I secretly in the back of my head knew what was wrong, but I was so afraid to face that I might not be as good as I thought. And, and part of that is... Because making people laugh and being likable came so easily to you that you, the way you described it in the book, you weren't even conscious that you were building a craft. You just had that part of it being comic timing, comic timing, knowing what's funny, knowing when to say what's funny, knowing how to carry yourself in a way that you were the likable funny guy it almost seems like that stuff got developed subconsciously for you, as opposed to in an ordered, uh, in an ordered way that you might have considered an earned and ordered way. Yeah, I mean, my, my the thing that had that entered me into the zeitgeist, and, and perhaps will still be the most notable thing I ever do, is a show called Drake and Josh. Like, it's me. It's a heightened version of me. But those writers, I think to their credit that I've, I view, especially in sitcoms that any smart writer will do, is they observe the actor, the guy, the Ray, the Jerry, who's ever sort of leading the sitcom. And they go, what's their sparkle? What makes them win? How can I write to that instead of making them sort of adapt to the way I want to write this? And I had that for me. And that's why I won. Because to your point, I was exploiting these these um, defense mechanisms, these sort of natural sort of tricks and trades that I'd learned throughout the years. I was just juicing this thing that that made me fun, you know, a fun hang, good at a party. Yeah, good at a party. Although, I, I mean, it's great the way you describe when you finally started going to parties and how most of the time before that you really didn't because you were self-conscious, right? 
yeah, I, I, you know, people always say like, yeah, but you were you were overweight, but you were on television. Like that couldn't have really informed, you know, it couldn't have dissuaded you from wanting to be with girls. You probably had plenty of opportunities. And I was like, no, no, I was literally 18 or I'm sorry, I was probably like 16, 300 pounds famous and preferred to alphabetize my DVDs than go to like any sort of party or put myself in any, I tell this story. I don't know if she likes it or not, because I think people once picked it up, but like the first girl I ever kissed was during a game of spin the bottle when I was 17 years old. And her name is Evan Rachel Wood. And she went to my acting class. And I was like, I just remember thinking like, God bless this girl for having pity on me and like not running away when the bottle landed on me. Well, can you, but, but, can you talk about, I mean, you're saying it and you're laughing now, but when I read the book, and I got to say again, it is so entertaining and so readable. I mean, I read it basically in one sitting. I blasted through it and I read every single word because Amy was sitting next to me we were on the plane and she's like, did you skim that? And I said, no, it's so fucking easy to read. And Josh writes in such um, an enticing and engaging manner that and then I think, you know, knowing you and liking you, uh, it all, but, but even if I didn't, I think the things I know and like about you are all there in the, in the book. Um, but I did come away thinking that a trick of your life is appearing totally open, but actually having a lot of secret shame that you're trying not to show. And I think that started with not being able to let people know about your struggles financially as a kid. And can you talk a little bit about the circumstances in which you were living in New York uh, with a single mother and about what, you know, about the way you learned to, I think, compartmentalize what you were going to present to the world versus what was going on internally? Sure. I, well, I grew up, I never met my dad. Um, and my mom was older when she gave birth to me. She was 43 and she was like single mom. I was an only child. And I liken it into the book to where most of my friends were the traditional family system. I looked at them like their parents were upper management and the kids were employees, but yeah. my mom and I were like a startup, you know, <laughs> and yeah. constantly pivoting, juking and driving. Sometimes the CEO has to sweep the floors and sometimes the assistant gets to pitch the big clients. Like, and, um, and so, you know, there's that great line in Fight Club about like, if our father, our, our model for God and our fathers leave, what does that say about God? And so immediately 50% of my parental unit's not there. So already I feel like, okay, anything is possible now. Nothing is permanent because he booked it. And then entering the financial insecurity part of it, which is like, knowing that a single parent who has to totally take care of their kid while also providing it's no easy task, nothing felt permanent. We moved a lot. We were constantly in between Florida and New York. I think I moved like 11 times in 12 years. And so I think it was my way of dropping anchor was sort of presenting this picture of someone who was lovable, who was worthwhile, um, and then also just because I was so overweight, I assumed that I walked into every situation at a disadvantage, that people made a snap judgment when I walked in the room, which was that I was either slothful or lacked willpower. And I didn't care about being special. I just wanted to be on the same level as everyone else. 
So you're right. I feel like I had to present a curated package to people because the idea of just being myself would leave me at a detriment. Well, yeah, one gets the sense in hearing your story, reading uh, about you, that you didn't really get to fully exhale and just be comfortable in your skin until really almost until you built your social media business. You got sober, learned how to act, and then built your business where you didn't need anyone else's kind of approval to do what you did. You had your audience. And it seemed like the first time that you could just relax and be Josh in his own skin in a way. Totally. I mean, it, I was listening to Maya Bialik interviewed on a, the other day, and she, she talked about how as a kid on set, you're not allowed to have a bad day. And that's probably not the healthiest thing for an adolescent. And I, it, was, it was bad habits, not only in life, but that I had to, to break in acting because every, you walk on a set and it's just thrown around that like, don't work with kid actors and animals. Like it just, so you want to be the anti that, right? So my whole raison d'etre till I was like 16 and did Mean Creek, which was like the first really good film I made was you want it louder or faster, boss? Like, I'll be on my mark every time. Like, look, I can even be, I, I, I can even, you know, I can, I can memorize everyone else's lines as well. It just was, I didn't ever want to be thought of as like that annoying kid that people are rolling their eyes at. And they probably still did. Um, but it was, yeah, to your point, it was like, I had to unlearn that frontward people pleasing energy, please like me casting director, please like me producer, please like me audience, please like me anyone, just because I, so I can be okay, because me be, being okay is completely contingent on your approval. Well, right, that, that, that's really clear. But what do you think was going on? So you tell this, this story and uh, that you get the standing O, the movie gets a standing O, The Wackness, which if people haven't seen Jonathan Levine's, that's his name, right? Jonathan Levine's movie. Yeah. It's fantastic. And Josh is great in it. And Olivia Thirlby is incredible in the movie. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, uh, the, the movie's just w winning all around. But you talk about how you, the, the film gets a standing ovation. And... You just want to leave Sundance. And then in the shadow of that experience, you became the opposite on set and became exactly the person who was causing the problems and people didn't want to be around because you had, a, you know, fell into a drug problem. And I, I wonder, as you've thought about this pathology, what do you think you were trying to teach yourself by when it finally was happening for you on your own terms? you almost seem determined to give it the finger. I, there's two, I think there's two parts of it. The first thing with the whackness was here I was at, you know, I dreamed of losing a hundred pounds and, and being of a healthy weight. And I do, you know, by the time I'm 18 and I'm like, wow, I got in before the buzzer. Like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> like I miss a couple of teenage years, but other than that, like I'm about to live the rest of my life as a thin person. So I lose the weight and then I realize that I'm the same head in a different body. So I find drugs and alcohol and, and then I can tell by the time I did the wackness, I'm now 21 and it's at Sundance. And the, my suspicion is, is that it's not working anymore as all things in my life have, have sort of lost their, their efficacy rather quickly. It's like my synapses burn out and they can't accept 
the the same amount of sort of you know food was this great thing and then it was drugs and alcohol and then I'm at Sundance now I had made a movie at Sundance when I was 16 and I said to myself one day I'm going to come back here and I'm going to be the star of a movie and not only am I the star of a movie but it's with my favorite actor Sir Ben Kingsley like I'm starting with Michael Jordan like my personal Michael Jordan and and throughout all this, all I ever wanted to be considered was a real actor, not a kid actor, not the funny fat guy, just an actor amongst actors. And it was all happening. And I met Sundance and we get the standing ovation and Quentin Tarantino's there. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. And I go to bed that night and I think somehow subconsciously, I thought tomorrow when I wake up, it will be the beginning of my new life. And when I woke up, I said, oh no, Josh is still here. And it was like, it was one of the most pivotal moments of my life because I realized that I was bottomless, that no food, no drugs and alcohol, no prestige was going to fix me. I was still me. And I remember I left and I immediately, you know, got on a flight home and people are screaming at me, what are you doing? This is, this never happens. Like you're, you're a hit. You're the toast of the festival. (laughs) Stay around for it. And you couldn't. I couldn't. I, I mean, it was literally like the moment I had been given admittance to the club. I, I couldn't, you know, I'd never want to be a member of, of, of a club that would have me as a member. Like I'd never be part of a club that had me as a member. And I, two weeks later, I got sober. And I think because I'm so good at putting my head down and trudging the road, I'm great in bad times. I'm not great when it's good. And that was such a validation of like, even when you get everything you always wanted, it's not enough. What do you think that's deep and sounds true to me? I have two things. One, what do you think, though, allowed you? Because it's great. You know, clearly the drugs. I loved your description that when you did coke for the first time. It just returns you to what for other people might be par, that basically it made you feel just OK. And that you yes. didn't realize that until you were like, hey, I'm at this party and I'm like, it, it didn't feel like a rush. It felt like I'm finally on equal footing. And that was what was so insidious for you. But what do you think it was deep down? Because you do say very clearly, the six weeks I shot the Wackness, I was sober. How do you, and then, and then you got fucked up again. As soon as it ended, you got horrible again, bottoms. What do you think happened that allowed you to function sober for six weeks? That's a long ass time if you're using every day. Yeah. What do you think happened there? First, just from a from a uh, a physiological standpoint, I was just like a dumpster. Like I basically like they people love to ask like, well, what was your drug of choice? I go whatever you had. Like so, thankfully, it wasn't like heroin or you know a crazy crystal meth withdrawal to where like you are so like the idea of stopping for six hours is inescapable, right? I just like on a regular basis was ingesting intoxicants in a way in which would allow me to not think. And I really didn't care what it was. So I was able to kind of wean myself off the week before to where I wasn't like basketball diaries throwing right. up over the side of the bed. But I mean, I, I was 100%. But you couldn't do that on other movies because you described getting a letter from Judd Apatow, which oh, yeah. is, a, I mean, what a fucking nightmare to have done that to yourself. But to have gotten that letter where he was basically saying, look, you're, you're hurting the production because you were so fucked up. 
and oversleeping and all that stuff. So what, what do you think it was about the opportunity of the Wagners that enabled you to kind of like borrow from your future sobriety for six weeks? Well, I think the good news is Judd Apatow has not been known to help out funny Jews. So right. nothing, nothing yeah, you lost didn't cost there. yourself anything. <laughs> I, you know, I think there, uh, alcoholics are great at responding to catastrophe, right? Like something, a big, huge, like, and it's usually negative, a DUI, something happens and it like literally disrupts the pattern and it startles you into some level of awakeness. And I think it was just this opportunity, this thing that I'd been fighting for so hard along with Ben Kingsley, like this was this weird culmination of a dream. This wasn't my rookie season. This was like, here is everything you ever wanted. You're starting at the top. And I knew, and I say this in the book, at this time I'm going against Jonah Hill and Miles Teller and Michael Sarah, like all these guys who are crushing it much harder than I am even till to this day. But I knew that I was uniquely qualified for this part and that in this case, I was the right guy. So I think all those things combined. Now, granted, every night, I would, the moment they yelled cut, I was smoking like a horse's dose of weed and you know, going back to my room and studying for the next day. But I, it just was like this secret agreement that I made with my disease. And it, my disease was doing push-ups in the background. Like it, it was within minutes of the night we wrapped that I was using hard drugs again. So nothing was lost. But yeah, for those six weeks, I was somehow granted this reprieve. I don't know, maybe the stakes of it were just that. When you watch The Wackness for the first time, you don't talk about this really, I don't think, in the book. When you watched it for the first time, were you able, because a lot of actors can't watch themselves, but it's very clear from reading the book and knowing you that you have the capacity to be analytical about your own work, not when you're doing it, but when you're looking at it, you really know. You're a filmmaker, uh, that's why you're so successful at social. It's not just who you are in front of the camera, it's like you actually understand the storytelling. So when you watched that film and saw yourself, did you have any moment of catharsis about it or did it just feel like an immediate challenge to try to do it again? Like what, what, what happened? Oh, I was so impressed with myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was like, this is how I want to be perceived. But you you know this, I think, Brian, uh, you must know this better than anyone that like, I always say this about acting. I get by with a little help from my friends. Like if I worked with you, there'd be no chance I would come across bad because if I did, if if it was unsavable, it'd get cut out. Right. Because yep. that's hundred percent true. Yes. A hundred percent true. Yes. So, and that's like when you're in the right hands and of course, obviously you're prepared and you're working off great material as the actor. It's like, unless you totally sabotage your health, yourself, it's hard to suck. Yes. But so when you saw it, you were impressed with yourself. And did you think that you had a chance to kind of come up to to be where those people you thought were your peers? Like, who is that list you just rattled off who you thought your peers should have been, even though those weren't right? You weren't always mentioned with those people. But is that who you thought your peers were at that moment? No, I thought my peers were Denzel Washington. (laughs) I thought, yeah, look, I knew those guys. And I also, 
you're absolutely right. I think the world's perception would be like, yeah, that would be a goal for Josh. But I also knew I'm like, yeah, but I was on the set with Apatow. I just fucked it up. Like, but I've been like, I got the call that like it came down to me and Jonah and Jonah got it. Right. So I'm getting that inside info of like, yeah, you're really close. You're an inch away, but you know, like, just like in sports, like there's, you know, you could be between two and 10 for your whole life in your ranking system as a professional tennis player or whomever, but that millimeter to be number one can be impossible. Yeah. And I relate, like I completely know the writers when David and I were coming up, the writers that we would look at screenwriters and be like, we should be able to do that. Like we should kind of be able to be where the, where that person is. And then, you know, when those people dig the work later, it's because you've done the work to get there and then they, you know, um, you know, like for, for us, Scott Rosenberg was always somebody like we just loved his movies. And like Scott, when when Scott at certain points would reach, we became friends. But when he would reach out about a piece of work or something and dig it, it meant a lot to us because we were like, yeah, that dude was ahead of our ahead of us, you know. So I would, you know. Um, I wonder with you, like you tell the story about Red Dawn, which was an opportunity to work with a bunch of those kind of people. And it had a different effect on you, right? Which is it got you kind of freaked out. Talk about that. Tell that story. I think it might be instructive to people because uh, what it ultimately is a story about having the courage to be yourself and what happens when you don't have the courage to be yourself. Well, I think it was truly the culmination of, you know, it's a duality of ego. And when I was overweight I, and I call my ego, like my inner Joe Pesci, like I had Joe Pesci in my head going, fuck them all. You're handsome. You're going to be a movie star. But there was no data to support that. I was 300 pounds and my best friend was the delivery girl of Alminos. And like, it was a ridiculous idea to think that that'd be possible. And then I kind of do it. I mean, at least I lose the weight and I get this opportunity in the whackness. And so completely on self-will and instinct, I had gotten myself this far and it had all worked. Of course, then I get Red Dawn and it's the culmination of, I'm playing Chris Hemsworth's brother, which the casting director, I think, had glaucoma or some sort of some sort of high disease. Yeah. And uh, and I'm playing this badass, like proper, you know, action hero. And this is the thing that I dreamed of. And I'm 23 and it's all just coming together the way I had imagined. But deep down, I knew I wasn't I don't know if I knew I wasn't enough, but I just felt like this is so foreign. This is so different. This isn't the whackness that I'm going to have to now double down on this ego, this putting on false airs to really satisfy what the script needs, what the producers want, and inevitably what the audience wants. And I, I nosedive myself. I mean, it's laughably bad. I, I, I laugh about it now, but I, I lived my life for a good decade after that movie saying my life was BRD and ARD, like before right. Red Dawn and after, because but, I, yeah. No, because what did you do? You, you, because I was thinking about like the, the hallmarks of a great Josh Peck performance are a certain kind of looseness. Uh, the yeah. fact that there's a sense of humor at play, even in serious moments, there's an awareness of the absurdity of the world. There's a comfort in the skin. There's a, there's sort of um, a way where you're rolling through as a very modern sort of a figure aware of the absurdity of the world and bouncing 
you know, kind of loosely bouncing through. And that performance has none of that, right? It's just, right. as you describe it, it's just almost as though you're trying to flex the whole time. It's so tense, which uh, Strasburg, shout out Strasburg. I'm the kind of guy who quotes Strasburg, always said like tension is the death of an actor. Like, and it's, I, I was so worried about being an imposter that I became a fraud. I abandoned everything that came naturally to me. And it was, I remember when it happened because we had to start training with Navy SEALs two months before the movie started. And I could just quickly see that I was not keeping pace with everyone else. And that was when I made the decision in my head that if physically I couldn't be Chris and I just, I didn't have the requisite testosterone. Well, of course you could have used that. What a great thing for a character, by the way, if the character feels like, I have to be better than myself as opposed to I am a bad, like you could have totally used it in a way. Totally. Oh my God. By me sort of turning my back on the reality was what killed me. And my buddy always says this. He's like a great character actor. Uh, I'm sure you know him, James Ransone. He's like, I can punch a guy in the face without irony. I just have to shake my hand out after. That's like, funny, Right. That's me. That's how I can believe that I could do something like that. And that encapsulates everything. But, and then the best part is the movie ends and I'm like, and people would tell me like, ah, editing does wonders. It's in your head. Every actor's hard on themselves. I'm like, no, no, this is imminent danger coming for me. And then MGM goes out of business and the movie gets held for three years. So I have three years to wait for my But execution. also there is word in the, this is the, you know, also though, it is true that word in the business was that you sucked in the movie. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm saying people that you didn't do what you did in the whackness, basically, during right. that period of time. That like whatever the whackness was, was an except. I remember being so confused because I was like trying to find out because I, Dave and I wanted to cast you, if you remember. And that movie never came. I mean, that movie we were trying to cast never came together. But like... It was like, well, he doesn't. If you're looking for that thing in the in that movie, that thing is not available in 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 Red Dawn. And it was like, well, why? And people were like, we don't know. It just that thing kind of disappeared. But later, it turns out there are all these reasons for it, which the book does an incredible job of bringing us inside your mindset as you're grappling with all this, and as you're grappling with, you know, a, a mounting addiction, right? Yeah. I mean, thank God I was sober during Red Dawn. I got sober when I was 21 because, and people are always interested that it's so early, but again, I had so much data to support that I overdo things. And so whether it was food and then eventually drugs and alcohol, I just knew that well, if I didn't. Yeah. You also tell the story about, I mean, you should tell it here. You tell the story about the Beverly Hills Hotel, like, which wasn't even the final straw, but. Uh, oh, that well, was early. Right. I mean, because it's hard to picture you do, acting in this manner. Do you want to just <laughs> tell people what a typical sort of afternoon for you was like? There was one morning in particular where I and I wasn't necessarily under the influence. I just I was just out of my mind and I was driving incredibly erratically in a rush to get over to to West Hollywood. And I lived in the San Fernando Valley and there's this, you know, sort of gigantic canyon system that separates the two. And I just remember I stop at a red light and someone gets out of their car and starts trying to punch through my window and rip me out of my car. And I, I thought, this is so odd. It's, it's 9 a.m. It's too early for this. And so I try to drive away and then other cars start boxing me in. 
And I quickly decide, well, I'm going to really have to make an aggressive move here. And I take off over the, the front lawn of this place with a very, very nice pink building. And then I realize it's the Beverly Hills Hotel. That's so crazy. And I land safely on the other side of the hotel, only to realize um, that I now should do the cogent thing, which is to alert the police. And I call them. And they say, sir, what kind of car are you? And I said, I'm in a black BMW. And they said, well, we've gotten seven calls about you. Pull over immediately. And I thankfully evaded them and, and got back to the valley. But I just was out of my mind. And I, I thought there was some sort of um, incentive to be the first to alert the police in many situations. But there isn't, apparently. You're still uh, in the wrong. I mean, I love that a guy was trying to get into your car because you were driving so uh so in insanely. Let's um let's just back up for a second because so much of this need for approval and love, I mean you touch on it briefly. But it's really moving part of the book uh is about the fact that you're your father was never in your life. It's not like he left when you were one. He was never in your life. He uh, paid an asshole tax, as you, I think, say, and 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 got to, you know, gave your mom uh, some money so that he would never be bothered again. But years later, you looked him up and he had, he had passed away, but you were able to find his family members. And you talk about, I mean, why don't you talk about, about this and about what it's all meant to you? Because I have some follow-up questions about now having written the book. So talk about your decision about whether or not to contact your sisters and brother or, or whatever, and how you, you know, what you saw when you went looking for this man who'd abandoned you. Sure. Well, my father was 62 when he had me. So I, I say in the book, he was um, getting uh, social security and chicks pregnant. And, uh, and, you know, I, I'd had no interaction with him throughout my life. I never saw a picture of him until I was 25. And I, because I always remember that I wasn't resentful at him. I was resentful at God because a father for Josh Peck would just be too normal. You know, I, I just hated being so different. You know, the single mom, chubby kid in the musical theater, not good at baseball. Like we were just terminally different. And, and then when he passed away, I remember I thought, well, uh, let me qualify with this. In my 20s, I started getting interested in, in perhaps meeting him. But by that point, right, I'd walked through Red Dawn. I'd lost 100 pounds. I was sober. I didn't know that anything would work out in my career, but like there was enough data to suggest that I was going to be okay. And I was res resentful because I said, well, I know what he gets, like a kid who really needs nothing from him. But what do I get? Like this invalid 85-year-old dad? But he hadn't reached out to try to get in touch with you, or, ha or Never. had he? Never. And did you get the sense that he knew that you were successful, that you were on television, or you didn't know at the, uh, about that? No idea. I mean, he's not, you know, certainly not my demographic, but I don't, you know, he had three grown kids and a wife. So I don't know how much he just- I mean, you were on the side of buses in New York sometimes. Like, you know, you would think that he would have seen your face and- you say you look something like that side of the family, right? So yeah, uh, he's, yeah, he certainly. I, I it I I've never been hiding, and he knew my name obviously. Um, 
But I remember that I would look up things on the internet and I, I would never find him because he was older. He didn't have an online footprint. And a friend of mine suggested I look up my siblings on Facebook. And I remember in an instant, I'm like bombarded by, you know, a whole history of my dad from him at bar mitzvahs and then at sweet 16s and college graduations and then eventually weddings. And, and then there were all these tributes because he had died in the last year of him uh, to him from my siblings about how much they loved him and their affection for him. And, and it really revealed this other side of my dad, that he was the dad that I always wanted him to be for me, for them. And it doesn't excuse what he did to me, but it's not the only truth of my father. Yes. Talk about though, your decision not to reach out to your siblings. Cause I, I find it, I would find it impossible to not really? want to, well, yeah, I would find it impossible to not want to connect with them, to not want to see if there was a sense of family, to not want to see if we laughed the same. And, and yeah, I would have to reach out. I, and I, and I, I have theory about what you uh, say, but, but talk, explain why you've chosen to not reach across the chasm. Well, I think too, it just in general, when people, you know, when my dad was alive, like I know just as being a fan of yours, Brian, that you have this incredible relationship with your dad. Like, I think people who have had it can't believe that someone wouldn't because their reference for it is like this healthy sort of beacon of good feeling and experience. And, and yet a lot of people I know who never had it can totally understand. And maybe there's no way to connect the two, but I, I think this, the idea was that I assume they don't know I exist. I mean, I have two sisters and a brother. I'm not exactly hiding. And I have no desire to sort of um, shake their image of their father because what he was to them was real. There was just also this other side. Um, yeah. But isn't it possible? This is the part that I would know. And it's not because, yes, I have an incredibly great relationship with my dad. And I'm so lucky about that. Uh, full stop. But isn't it possible that some part of them knows their dad had secrets? Because you're picturing what you see on social media. Sure. And isn't it possible that you hold answers to questions that have been haunting them? It's so possible. When you put it like that, this is why you are who you are, Brian. It's so good. <laughs> It's so true. Right. That I mean, if you think about our relationships with people, there's always these missing gaps and these things. And it's like, wait, I want a full pit. Yes, it might be painful, but I always wondered where he went between and why he came home smelling like pickles. Like there's right. all these, like there are all these oh, pickles, which is significant in his, uh, in his book. <laughs> but no, there are all these sort of things that I wonder if, if, if they're walking around like, God, I wish that I understood these certain aspects. There were times dad would get a faraway look or there were moments when he said this cryptic thing to me that I don't understand, but I understand it now because somebody reached out or I have more capacity to love than I thought because somebody reached out. Like I wonder if, and I also wonder if you're depriving yourself of something under the guise, it's a question of under the guise of sort of being a good person and not fucking with them, are you trying to shield yourself from emotions that are uncomfortable to feel? It's a, 
I guess there's no way to know until you know, until you do it. And I think like your, your line of thinking seems very uh, solid. So it's quite possible. I mean, it's also like I talk in the book, there was, there was that part of it. And then there was also me having a son, which felt weirdly like my cosmic comeuppance. And I remember thinking, there's no way I'll have a boy, like I've done too much musical theater. And then of course, when he presented himself, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, we don't always get the amends that we deserve, but sometimes we give it to ourselves by not perpetuating trauma. To the yeah, no, it's beautiful when you talk. Yeah, it's beautiful. Talk more about like now you having the obligation to be the opposite of how he was to you. Right. Yeah. And I and also just like in these weird ways that the universe has cared for me, like my mom having, you know, the foresight to get me an incredible big brother from the Jewish Big Brother Foundation when I was eight or, you know, now my father-in-law who's like, so I've been lucky to have these father figures and then having my son and totally getting off on these innocuous moments of, you know, waking up in the middle of the night with him, or I talk about, you know, it just boggled my mind that I had created this kid who had a CVS account when I, uh, when he needed an antibiotic for an ear infection. I'm like, wow, like I've created someone who can now uh, uh, keep the CVS corporation in business. Um, but, and I started to feel bad for my dad only because, you know, whether he felt a monicum of guilt or not, I have no idea, but it's like, he missed out on all this. And I, you know, I always say this and, and I never wanted to get misinterpreted, but I know you'll know what I mean. As like a guy who's done a, a certain amount of work on himself. And like, I, I, the thing that is of most importance to me is like, I am a good man. Like it's the thing I've beyond being a good actor. It's the actual thing I've always wanted to grow up to be. It's like, I don't cheat on my wife for me, not for her. Obviously it's because I deeply respect my wife and would never do that to her, but I'm not willing to do it to myself. I'm not willing to walk around with that guilt and shame. And you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yes. You're not going to repeat. I mean, you're not going to walk in his shoes in that way. Yeah. And I, I just know that I am witness to my bad behavior, right? There's no karma. There's no God spiting me. I pay for it because I go into uh, a guilty spiral. And so I don't, you know, I don't ever want to. Yeah. Does part of you want, is there part of you that wants them to have to do the work of following the breadcrumbs to finding you? Like, as you write, like, you know, you've now written a book, you've put it out there. I mean, is that part of it? Because obviously if they did, you would talk to them. Oh, certainly. I, you know, I may, it's funny, right? Like really the hardest thing, the hardest decision one of that I had to make in this book, um, other than not dedicating it to my mother, which I'm pretty sure I'll hear about to the end of times. <laughs> Love you, mom. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, the, was really mentioning Judd Apatow's name in that story that we talked about because A, I was like, I don't want my bad behavior to now serve me in a great story for my book. And and originally I had written it just as this powerful producer. And Ryan Holiday, our mutual friend who advised me on the book, said, if you don't say Judd, we're not going to get the gut punch. He's right. We'll Ryan is right. It's important. Yeah, and, and I should clarify, I'm a Ryan Holiday fan much more than a Robert Greene fan. Earlier you said we both love Robert Greene. I like the one book, but I'm Ryan okay. is my guy. Yeah, just to gotcha. be clear. I have no problem with Robert Greene. I've only read one book, though. So I can't I can't stand the way you're, you're standing for him. But, but <laughs> Ryan, for sure. Ryan, for sure. 
Yeah, Ryan's well, Stoic book is spectacular and everybody should read it. By, by the way, Ryan Holiday, the ultimate Robert Greene stand. So maybe we're- I know, <laughs> I'm aware. I know, that's why I'm saying. That's the, by transitive property, I'm sure I would be a big Robert Greene guy. I'm just not yet, basically. Fair. No, fair enough. But yeah, so he was like, you must include the name so we understand sort of this, how big this is. And, but I didn't, you know, I could have probably- added some more defining characters to my family. Um, and so it'd be easier to pick up. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I did say what state they live in and that there's three of them. And I don't know, there's probably more than enough. You don't have to watch CSI to be able to decipher this one. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I am. I'm saying like, yes, you didn't say their first names or anything like that. But I do wonder if if that will fulfill something for you, if if their side of the family will do a little bit of the of the of the work in a way. Now, had you ever written any kind of a long thing bef before? Because you're a good writer and you you didn't have a ghost, right? You wrote the book. No, I wrote, yeah, I wrote every word and I, early on when I got, I, I've written, uh, um, I wrote a TV show that was in development for a while and I wrote a, a screenplay, but that's really it. And I, I know, and you write all your, obviously you write your, the, the, you write your spots, you write your commercials and you write, I mean, all the stuff you direct like that you, and you put together, you, you write, Sure. but, but the jab, I mean, the way you describe this moment when you were a kid, um, the gesture that your father makes with his hand over his heart. I'm sure you heard that story from your mom a lot, but the way you describe that. First of all, I wondered, have you ever done that on film? Probably. I do it in life. I do notice that. Oh, you that. do? I do, yeah. I totally do it. That's awesome that you do that. <laughs> because though, you know, the way you just get so beautiful, but so full of shit, the way that you do, because you could, re you can receive that as a reader in that, you know, that was his kiss off. Right. Or you can take it as, his heart hurts, but he has to do this. And you can kind of take it either way. And I thought it was beautifully fucking presented. And as a, I'm wondering as a writer, what your approach to getting this done, you know, all the things you talk about, the fears uh, within the work of the acting, but a lot of people find writing terrifying. And so I wonder if you could just talk about how you got chapters done and how you thought about rewriting them and what the process was to get you from conceiving of this idea and selling it to actually writing the book. Yeah, I, you know, as a byproduct of this social social media career that I started in 2013, and it's been, you know, really fruitful for me, I started doing these talks at colleges. And uh, so, you know, just be happy to know that your, uh, the tuition you're paying parents is going to having guys like me come who never graduated high school and talk to your, uh, the young minds of tomorrow. Um, but I, and then, you know, this idea came to me where, and I love doing these gigs because it's kind of half stand-up, half Q&A, which was if I wrote a book that perhaps I could even open up sort of that opportunity even more so to start just to, to qualify me more so to talk to, to these groups of people. And so I put together a proposal and it was about 25 pages and just a page or two for each chapter. And I get the deal. And then I realized that I only know about showbiz and I need a producer. I need a development guy. I need a guy that I can send pages to and they can tell me if they suck and then I'll, I'll rewrite. And Ryan had been a friend of mine and for anyone who doesn't know, he's a 10 time bestseller, like a 
just iconic in, in the literary world. And I asked him if he would satisfy that for me as an advisor and he agreed. And, and so it just became, you know, all the unsexy part of like, it was my story. So I knew I was qualified and I knew the beats, but spending two months outlining and getting really, really clear about what I wanted to say. I was lucky that I had a wealth of stuff, my podcast over 120 episodes to pull from. So a lot of the research that I think for some would have to begin, I was sort of halfway through. Um, I had plenty to draw from. What did the outline look like? How detailed was the outline? It was, uh, I should go back and look at it. It basically was just a beat of like, or it was just like a beat by beat. It was probably a page per chapter of like, here will be the chapter name. This is what I want to introduce. These are some of the podcasts that I can reference, some good stories that I remember. Because basically each, each chapter I wanted to qualify with a story from my life and then sort of pull from the podcast. It's like, and here are even more impressive people than me, like Brian and Laird Hamilton and whoever else I've ever interviewed who went through something similar. And then a bit of a wrap up of, so what do we know? With all this information, what do we know? And it, it took me, it's funny, I was doing Turner and Hooch for eight months and I wrote the book over those eight months. And I can't believe I was like working consistently as an actor and finishing this book because it's so not like Would me. you go to your camper and you would go from set to your camper and then in your camper you would write? Nonstop, yes. And I initially, I wanted each chapter to then have like a follow-up two or three page, like, like sort of just really analyzing the chapter and doing even more of a deep dive into the research in the podcast. And I, I submitted it to Ryan and maybe he just knew my deadline was approaching, but he's like, I think you're good. And I, I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, there's the book you intend to write. And then there's the book you write. And I think this book as it stands now works. Yeah, you didn't need the kind of, you don't need the review, uh, end of chapter kind of review thing. The, the reader's going to just do that right. uh, anyway and kind of gets this. Look, it's uh, through watching your journey, the reader's going to ask themselves the questions that you want them to ask themselves. And they're going to understand sort of where they are on, in their own lives on your, on the, on the continuum you lay out. I think that that's, I think that that's true. At what stage in this did you sell the book? Like for, before you started? Yeah, before I started, I, when I sent the um, sort of the proposal and then I had a couple good meetings with different publishers and, and then my last one was my favorite meeting and my agent said, you'll probably wind up going with the person you had. Like he, he actually said, you'll probably get the most attractive offer from the person you had the best meeting with. And it turned out to be totally true. And I've just, you know, Harper one, I felt like in, in the right place the whole time. And was writing creatively satisfying to you in a different way? It just furthers all the evidence that has been when I circumvent the gatekeepers yeah. and I do it on my own, uh, the reaction tends to be pretty good. Yes, like with the social media thing. And, and what do you think it was? You know, you, you tell audition horror stories, which I, I love. <laughs> uh, you tell this incredible story of a, of a casting director asking you if you trained and that making you make, you know, decide, fuck, even though I'm already, by anyone else's terms, successful, I have to break myself down and start training. 
Right. And can you talk about that a little bit? Because there's the, the one thing you don't skip over this, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit more. W- acting is such a fragile thing. Like you're always, as a, as a, a person who works with actors, I'm always really aware of the weight that my words can have um, mm. in terms of puncturing the fragile confidence of an actor. There are some, you have a long-term enough relationship where you can go up to them and be like, yeah, let's do something totally different. Uh, but then most of the time you need to frame it in certain ways because it is so crucial to be super comfortable in your skin to do it that if you're not and you're thrown off, it can really fuck it up. So the decision for you to break the whole thing down, mm. talk about how what the stakes of that were for you or if you were aware of there being stakes. Yeah, I think we all... Uh, let me just make it about actors. I think there's this secret caveat that a lot of us, like this emotional or spiritual caveat that we carry around, which is this idea of if if I'd given all of myself to it, if I'd given 100% of my ability, then of course I would have gotten it. But I was- Oh, busy. the part you mean, the part, I would have gotten the part. Yes. Yeah. Like if I really, but like I held a little bit back or I, because we give ourselves this emotional out because what's even- scarier than not getting it is the idea of I gave it every ounce of my being. Yes. I've said this and this is totally right. I've, I've said this in speeches I've given. Yes. I agree with you. Totally. And that was what I had been doing for years. I knew I talk about when I started going to my new acting teacher, that it was like fulfilling an errand that I'd pushed off for 10 years. Wow. It was, I knew deep down, I'm like, you have bad habits. Something's not firing here. And it was, I likened it to like an, uh, uh, a player that does great at the combine, but can't always like on game day, it just, he can't thread the needle. Cause like, I knew it was, I, I was like, I certainly know deep down in my being that I have certain skills that are, I don't know if I call it elite, but pretty good. Like there are certain things I do that like work. People have liked it over time. I can, of course them. you're a, uh, not just a work. You're a, a really successful person in front of a camera for your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew I had like some special skills, but it wasn't enough and I couldn't summon it at will. And I remember I asked our our friend Vincent D'Onofrio, who's represented by my manager, if he knew an acting teacher. And I don't know why I felt like a drunk asking if, if someone knew of any good AA meetings while I'm ordering my eighth drink. But and he said, there's one teacher and her name's Sharon Chatton. She's my my teacher. And she teaches method the way it was taught by Strasberg, like at the new school. And I said, or I'm sorry, at the actor studio. And I, I said, uh, okay. And I remember I walked in, this was a year and a half later. I had some more bad acting to do. And I walked <laughs> in <laughs> and she said, uh, you can, you know, you can join uh, when we start scene work. And I began the scene work and within a, a six seconds of me speaking, she was like, what's going on here? And proceeded to have me do the same line for 30 minutes, just 30 minutes straight as I'm face planning in front of this group of people who probably watched me growing up. Well, I was going to say there's, there's in those things, there's a hierarchy and someone who's a super working actor as you were, because whatever was going on inside you or you knew auditions, you'd flamed out or you knew to the outside person, you're who they all want to be. 
And sure. so, and you know that, like, you know, you're walking in there with status because you're successful, you have money, you're, mm. you know, the again, the outside perception is, oh, this guy's just here to refine his craft or he's here to keep studying. But you knew you were there to learn how to act. And did is it, was it uncomfortable or did you immediately like the uncomfortableness? Like what happened? What did it feel like to you? It's the one thing I, I hate. I remember I went home that night and I woke my, you know, the classes would start at seven and they could go as late as one or two in the morning. And I would go home and I woke my wife up and I said, I, I was in a full panic because this idea, it was because I had attached so much of it, right? Like this thing that I'd been doing for 20 years, I'm secretly not good at. And my worst fear had become realized. Also, this is how I, I take care of you. This is how I'll take care of our kid. It's how, how I take care of my mom. And maybe I finally am like facing this idea that this might not be enough to get me through the next 30 years. And, and I went right back the next week. It's the one thing about me, like to my credit, like I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know what it is. I can't, I just know I have the greatest mom on earth who had to act like mother and father and she never let me get away with shit. And I think that instilled this idea of like, if someone is really, I, I just have to believe that they are going to make me better at one degree and I'll eat it. I'd be great at basic training if it wasn't for all the push-ups, Cause like I can, I can handle it. My ego, <laughs> my ego doesn't work like that. You know, I like to be broken down. I like to be pushed. And do you like that, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I think it was unfair, the situation in so many ways, like nobody from the age of 12 should have to take care of their family. I, that just feels wrong to me. But does some part of you, obviously you have pride about it. Does some part of you welcome that, that burden of being a caretaker too, of, of providing and, and in, in some way, it, is, it seems like it matters to you. you do, throughout the book, you do talk about finances in a very open way that often actors, people in our business don't. I think I, I you know, I wanted to talk about the finances specifically as it applied to Drake and Josh, because I just think that it's such a misnomer, this idea of like, when you walk off a TV show, you're set for life, especially a kid's TV show with no residuals such as Drake and Josh that I was, you know, I literally had a year of runway left um, and we weren't living large. We had a, right. you know, a lovely two bedroom apartment in, in North Hollywood. So, right. um, and I, I think in many ways, um, despite the challenges I've walked through, like I'm, I'm really overpaid in life. Like I had this mother who believed in me and, and sort of uprooted her whole life to, support me to move 3000 miles away from our home and, and, and put this, this huge level of support behind me. And now like I have this wife and a kid and like, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. And I believe my role in this is of the provider, like, because I'm so taken care of emotionally and I'm so taken care of and all the things that you can't buy that if I if this is my sort of secret sauce is I can be good at bringing in the money to finance this whole endeavor, then great. But I think it's as even as what I get from everyone else. It's a great place to end it. Listen, everybody, this kid wrote 
a book that's really worth reading. It's so fucking entertaining. And uh, it was just what I needed to, to, it was exactly what I needed to read after this trip that, that I was on. And, um, and Josh, I'm so happy for you that you've gotten to this place in life. And I'm so happy that, you know, the last two years have seen you have leads on two or three different television shows and that offers are coming in and that everybody knows how good you are now. And, uh, you know, you've, and that the, you know, social media of it, I mean, the story in the book, and I'll say again, it, it all looks so easy from afar, but the way you talk about, and you and I are going to, you and I are going to have a conversation at the 92nd street. Why soon? And I think your story of, and people should read this in the book, your story of having to pivot from Vine to YouTube and that it took you a, a year of struggling at it and you didn't to figure it out when the whole industry was looking at you like a weirdo. It's also really inspiring and says a lot about your grit and your intelligence and this combination of things. So people should read the book and, and you and I will talk about that at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, go read Happy People Are Annoying by Josh Peck. Go watch The Wackness if you haven't watched it. It's a great movie. Skip Red Dawn. Skip oh, it. Skip Red Dawn. Oh, last thing though. Yeah. Ha Chris Hemsworth, did you ever after the fact reach out to him? Does he know about the book? Dude, he I, I we haven't reached out because he's too famous now. But I love him and he's as good as gold. And here's the craziest part. Did you I, text him? Wait, you haven't texted him? You did. You know, Brian, that when people hit a certain level of fame, suddenly their number changes. Yeah, but you could get his phone. <laughs> you know, I also know either of us could get his phone number if we had to. It's he is as good. It's not fair. I say in the book, like Chris is short for Christ for a reason because I was man, at a I was at a destination wedding with him one time, and I, you would I I like there were very few people that I you can't even approach that dude before he was even this famous you know yes. five years ago seven years ago he was super famous but not and obviously you and I are both around people like that all the time but you look at him you're just like. I have nothing on for that guy in conversation. No, he's as good as it gets. And it's so funny because like years later, people will come up to me, like, especially God bless him, our servicemen. And we'll be like, you know, I really love Red Dawn. And I'm like, I got to really shut up about trashing it because it can mean a lot to people, even though I'm not so pleased with it. People, that movie, Red Dawn, the original is worth, go back to the original movie and watch that. You know that. what, Brian? No, it's not. <laughs> I've seen it recently. It, the original's not that great either. <laughs> all right, that's where we're going to end it, folks. Josh Peck hates all movies called Red Dawn. All right, Josh, I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks, buddy.